1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? This is Dr. Zero, her loving husband Cornelius, and little Milo. The most dangerous to man is little Milo. Why? The time is 1973. The place is right here on Earth. How did they get here? What is their reception? Welcome, gentlemen, to the United States. Escape from the planet of the apes. Their adventures are completely fresh, completely new. Astonishingly different from what you experienced in Planet of the Apes and beneath the Planet of the Apes. At first, feared and imprisoned. We'll take the female first. Well, she seems to be pretty smart. All right, we'll go for the banana. Well, why doesn't she take it? Because I loathe bananas. I don't believe it. Zira, are you mad? Till we know who our friends are and who our enemies... And how in the name of God are we to know that unless we communicate? We can speak, so I spoke. <laughs> President. The president convenes a special board of inquiry. Have you a name? Zero. Does the other one talk? Only when she lets me. <laughs> Embraced by our civilization, the nation gives them a hero's welcome. Address, please. The zoo. <laughs> what is it? Well, it's sort of uh, like grape juice plus. Is that? Very wet. It's certainly the most incredible story this reporter has ever covered. And you share the impact of every incredible moment. Must have been the shock. Shock, my foot. I'm pregnant. The president's chief advisor wants them murdered, or else the human race cannot survive. The escape. The birth of an infant who could threaten man's very existence. You're the second human I've kissed. You are the first. 
the relentless chase. The stunning climax. Why was Washington thrown into a turmoil by this one baby? Stop him! Escape from the planet of the apes. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and today I am joined by my two friends, Scott H. Gardner. Hello, how's it going? It's going good, thank you. How you doing? Great. Excited to be here. And we are joined by Mr. Zaki Hassan. Hi, how's it going? It's going good. How are you? Hanging in there. No complaints. And, you know, the, the, the disappointment is that we do not have Rich Hanley with us today, uh, who is, as I was saying, if we had him, we have everybody who's like a huge Apes fan that I know. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, uh, Rich is, is not available, so I'm going to have, we'll have to try and fill the gap uh the void that he leaves, but we are today, uh, we've moved up to Escape from the Planet of the Apes, which I think, and I'm not necessarily even talking about the two of you, although I do know some opinions on that too, but I think just among the general people, it is probably the most popular of the original five Planet of the Apes, it's probably the most popular sequel in that, that group. Yeah, I'd yeah. say so. And I, I think, you know, it, it is absolutely them just kind of totally flipping the uh, story. You know, that we started out with Taylor uh, going into the ape planets. So now we come to the apes coming to our planet or in our time, uh, theoretically our time. But uh, yeah, when, when it came out, it was. Uh, you know, the, the, I guess the first thing is that they... Uh, you know, they, they blew up the planet at the end of the last one. <laughs> so so it must have been a little difficult for them to say, okay, how are we going to go about doing this? And they, they just took kind of the leap of faith of saying, uh, yeah, they, they escaped in a uh, rocket ship before the explosion. Uh, and they didn't really elaborate on exactly how they did that until they got to some of the comic books where they, they did that. And we even... Uh, Covered, a, I think we covered at least one of those on Back to the Bins during our Planet of the Apes week uh, several years back. In a quick but, recollection, I think at this point there's been, a, 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 I think there's been at least three different versions. <clears throat> pardon me of how they got into that rocket and and huh. how uh, Dr. Milo salvaged it and everything because there was there was one and actually come to think of it, there's two in the comics. And then there were, I think there's two different stories. There was one in Conspiracy of the Planet of the Apes and another one in one of those uh, anthology books, which the name of which is escaping me at the moment. There was a short story in one of them. And, uh, yeah, there might even be another one out there. So there's been several different versions you know that because I guess, you know, for, for a lot of fans, that's kind of a nagging thing is, you know, the film works, and I don't think the film really needs to explain anything. It definitely doesn't seem like it feels the need to explain, because it just kind of, 
you know, it's it's like you either run with it or you don't right from the beginning of the movie because they never really explain any of it. Um, but I, I think it works. That, I think, you know, I think part eh. of the reason they get away with it is by killing off Dr. Milo so quickly uh, because he's the one who was the scientist who helped them to uh, engineer the rocket and to escape. So by killing him off early, you just had uh, Zira saying, uh, oh, he was a genius, he did it. <laughs> so I, I think that was a pretty clever way of them getting out of it. But just, I mean, just to give, uh, before I get into some more specifics, the overall thoughts, I, I find this one to be strange because in its own way, it's the mo- it's one of the most depressing ones because of the way it ends, but it's also one of the most lighthearted ones at the same time. So it, it, it's a little, you know, uh, there's, there's a little conflict of feelings as I watch this one sometimes. I think that's one of its strengths, though, because uh, another favorite of mine uh, from uh, the same general time period is uh, Dawn of the Dead, the original Dawn of the Dead. And that one has that kind of feeling as well because there's a lot of really light-hearted moments and everything when the folks are, are living in the mall you know surra- they're surrounded by you know a, a dead world that wants to kill them you know zombies you know uh, surrounding the mall but you kind of you get lulled and you completely forget what's going on outside the confines of that mall and you kind of get into the the playfulness of the day-to-day life of the people that are living in there and the funny things that they're doing and everything and then the film will sharply remind you of what's going on. And this film doesn't quite do that, but there is definitely like a definitive moment in the film where everything changes. Like it, it's very light and, and, you know, there's some really beautiful scenes with them being toured around the city and, you know, their media darlings and all that sort of thing. And then all of a sudden you turn a corner into a very dark movie that ends, as you say, on a very down note. And uh, it, all that really works to its strengths, I think, because you have to remember, I mean, the original movie <laughs> ends on a pretty serious downer note, too. And, you know, that I, you know, for me personally, that's why this movie uh, works is that, you know, what could have been, you know, criticized as its as its greatest weakness, you know, just simply flip flopping the story and you know telling the original movie, you know, kind of on, you know, turning it upside down. You know, that could be a big criticism against it, but it, it works. I mean, it's totally what makes the movie work is, you know, you've gone from, you know, a man going to the future and, you know, living on an ape planet to the apes from the future coming back and, and having to deal with our society and our planet. And, yeah, it, it totally works on that on that level. But I like that they both mirror, uh, you know, the very, <laughs> very sad ending to it. Uh, I will totally cop to the fact that, uh, you know, it's man tears every time I, I watched it again last night in preparation for this. And that, you know, that scene right at the end, uh, it, it gets me every single time. It's it's just heartbreaking. I think this this movie, you know, I think what it does is and I think it's a really, really good storytelling trope is they have all those lighthearted moments and we have two characters, Cornelius and Zira, that we already like from the prior two films. And then we're showing them in a much more lighthearted way because in the past two films, you know, they were, they were dealing with, you know, much heavier issues. 
But now, like you say, they're the media darlings. They're being brought around, and you're seeing them in a way where where you you liked them, and by the time this is done, you love them. And it just makes that end even more crushing. Absolutely. It's it's interesting because because what we see a lot of I mean I think I think Paul Dane I was gonna say he's the unsung presence but in this series but that's really not true because I think he's widely acknowledged as being you know the person who really was able to keep it alive and I think his his sensibility of of melding uh, sort of satire with really dark downer endings I mean it tells you something about the fact that Paul Dane in at least three of the 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 scripts and three of the, the the three that he was fully responsible for are even darker than the ending from Mr. Twilight Zone. Mm. And you know I and and uh, and how do you, how is it that you can have uh, have something that feels even darker than oh here's the Statue of Liberty half buried and oh my gosh we we nuked ourselves right but it's it's because of of the way he 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 juxtaposes what you say, you know, the 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 frivolity of the first half of the movie with the the sheer drop that we experience at the end, and the way so especially so much of Escape is built on these little moments where when you construct it in your head, you're like, if they had just done this instead of this, they would have been okay. If they would have just done this instead of this, they would have been okay. It's all these little moments, and that's what makes it so much more tragic. Where you're like. Oh, if only you know Zira hadn't gone to the 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 museum with Doctor Hasline. Oh, if only Zira hadn't gotten uh, shit faced. Oh, if you know. Oh, if only they didn't leave the the little the suitcase. You know all these things, and you're like, God, who knows? You know, and and I, what I really love because I, I just revisited this last week is is how how uh, Ricardo Montalban is like the voice of the audience almost. You know. He's yeah. like, oh, if if only you could have lived. So I mean, that's us. That's all of us. We're feeling that, you know. Now, uh, the the thing about this one that really just kind of makes it, you know, just Scott and I were talking uh, about something, you know, yesterday, which was totally different. But I was talking about how I like comic books and movies where they present you with a moral or ethical or sociological question and they don't present an answer to you. Now, in this one, emotionally, clearly, you you side with Cornelius and Zira because you love them as as this movie's going on. But Hmm. when you look at this from a... When you remove yourself from the emotion, isn't Dr. Hasline just doing what he has to in his mind to preserve his race? Isn't this the baby Hitler question? Absolutely. Yeah, he I mean, he's such a great character, really. Like yeah. he I mean, he is the he is uh you know, look, look at Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas is just doing what he needs to preserve his culture. It's yeah. it's the exact same parallel and that's I mean, yes, he is the the uh, you know, he's the the black hat of the piece for lack of a better phrase, but but I mean, he has so many great moments, right? He's when he's talking to the president, he's like, "Am I God's uh, enemy or his instrument? I don't know. I just don't know, right?" And I, I love that scene. Yeah, that that's. I think that's one of the most powerful scenes in the entire film because without that, Hasline 
could be just the villain of the piece, but he's right. really not. That that sequence, that scene with the president, where he he admits that he is struggling with this, and you know, it, it there's a certain sense of you know he he's you know he because he mentions God, you know, am I the instrument of God or am I defying His will? You know that you know it, it implies that he's a religious man and that he's wrestling with this moral question because he's concerned with you know his eternal soul, like. You know how am I? You know how am I going to be justified one way or the other in this? And you know while what he does at the end of the the movie is awful and in a lot of ways despicable, it's also I mean he's not the hero by any stretch, but there's a certain sense of he's almost like the character in um, uh, Stephen King's The Dead Zone, where he's seen mm, the future. Yeah. He has to take a, a drastic action, and he knows how he's going to be painted by history as some sort of nut that tried to kill this senator. But what he's trying to do is preserve the future. Right. And Hasline's kind of in that same predicament. Uh, uh, the, you know, the only difference is he he's not really sure until he finally decides to to make a choice. And uh, yeah, I think that's that, again. I think that's one of the things that really works to the film's strength is. There is no answer. He he himself does not know. <laughs> but she knows. She she's got she's got opinions on the subject of Hasline. She's got opinions on everything. <laughs> uh, give me give me about two seconds because she's going so nuts. That I'm thinking somebody might be at my door. So let me just. Oh no. <laughs> I'll be right back. All right, sorry guys. Somebody hey. from the Long Island Youth Club. I told her to hit the roads. Cool. Paul, did you ask them what they think of uh, Dr. Hasline? <laughs> you know, I, I would love to just go to somebody randomly and say, what do you think of Dr. Otto Hasline's theory? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I've said many times. Or better yet, go to, go to somebody randomly on the street and just start quoting Dr. Hasline's, uh, you know. <laughs> we think we've got all the time in the world. The art, artist painting picture of the artist painting oh. a picture. The artist painting a picture of the. Okay, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go right to that before I go to the point I was gonna make. Does that make sense to anybody? No. No. I I. Every time I think I'm almost there, I lose it. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> <laughs> he's talking about infinite regression, right? So it's the idea of. Yeah. See, I lost it. See, I was almost there, and I lost it. <laughs> There, there's a germ, yeah. There's a germ of an idea there. Something about being able to pull back to a point where you can see all of the, you can see the entire roadmap of the timelines. I and think you're you're both observer is, and observed. I yeah, think. I, see, see, I that, think that's what he's talking about. But what that has to do with the newscaster's actual question, I really don't. And, and how it explains what, time travel what is beyond me. What he says about changing lanes makes more sense to me. Right. That if we think of time as a highway with an infinite number of lanes, if you change your lanes, you change the future. That makes sense, kind of. Uh, but the yeah, the the infinite regression thing, forget about it. What what that scene says to me, and I could be misinterpreting it, but what it says to me is, Otto Hasselin is supposed to be an absolute genius, and whoever's writing this uh, this screenplay, and I guess that is Paul Dean. Uh, yeah. He's he's obviously a very intelligent man, but maybe perhaps not genius level. And <laughs> trust me, I don't claim to approach that in any way, shape, or form. I'm not trying to to put him down. 
but maybe it's somebody who's very smart trying to sound brilliant. And, you know, it gets lost in the translation a little. That's that's uh, that's what I'm giving him credit a, for. It could also be a matter of Hasline is so smart that he's not able to vocalize, you know, what it is. He, he has a clear picture in his own mind, but when he tries to explain it in layman's terms, it just comes out as a muddled mess that doesn't really make any sense. But it's clear as a bell to him. It's, you know, there's that possibility, too. Well, I'll, I'll give you the sports <laughs> analogy to that. And I know, Scott, you're not much of a sports fan, and I'm really not sure about you, Zachy, but I'm going to give you the sports analogy, analogy just the same. Uh, there have been some athletes who are, like, the greatest of all time. And when it comes to the point when they retire, they generally are not great coaches or managers or, hit, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever – job that there is because it all came to them so naturally that they can't articulate how to learn how to do these things right. it, it just you know it, it's just there meanwhile if you get a player who had good physical ability but not that real superior physical ability and had to work harder to be a major league baseball player or a, a football player or whatever sport they were in they know the specifics of what you have to do to achieve that and they can articulate it better so maybe Otto Hasline is such a genius and it comes to him so naturally that he's explaining this on a level that's at his level but us being the dullards that we are cannot understand <laughs> what he's saying right. so I, I can go with that as an explanation uh, but go, going back to him in general what what I started to say was I've always really enjoyed stories where the villain of the piece, and, and I guess in this instance we're probably better off calling him the antagonist than the villain, uh, but where the antagonist of the piece, in his own mind, is the hero of his story. Yeah. And I think Otto Hasselin is the hero of his story. He knows he might be painted as a villain, but he's doing this for the betterment of mankind in his opinion. And he's actually... Uh, you know, willing to sacrifice his own life because he knows that he could get killed doing this. Hmm. Yeah, he. I mean, like I said, he uh, he's just doing what Doctor Zayas did in the in the previous in the first film. You know. Yeah, and Doctor Zayas, you know, when you look at it on a, on a superficial level, is a villain of the piece. But when you start looking more deeply into his motivations, you see that you know, to to whatever extent you can argue it, his his motives were somewhat pure. He was right. trying for the betterment of his species. Yep. So I would argue, though, about about um, Hasline willing to die for his convictions. I I don't think he went at the end, you know, where he hunts Zira and the baby down. I I don't get the impression that he's necessarily willing to lay down his life or even expected to. I don't know if I he mean, expected clearly, to, but I think he was willing to. I mean, possibly. It, it's it's an interesting thing to think about, and I never really thought about it before, but it, it seemed to me like he's trying to cover himself, and he's clearly he hides when the copters come out and everything because he's he's evidently willing to risk you know the, the wrath of the president because he's defying a presidential order by going after them. You know, the president wanted them taken alive, and, you know, he's out to kill them. So there's that level, you know, so he is at least that... Uh, you know, dedicated to his cause and everything, but you know, willing to die? I, I don't know. That's that's an interesting question. Well, I never let's really let's pull it back that. just a step then and and say he knows that Cornelius and Zero have been the darlings of the media, 
And he knows that the public at large love them and they don't understand the ramifications of their existence, despite the fact that he might try and let them know that. So, therefore, his killing them, which is clearly what he's out to do, is going to put him in a very bad position and likely make him, even, you know, if, if he's successful and walks away, make him at least escape, go to the point where he's probably going to prison. So he, I think he's well, very I wonder, willing to sacrifice he, a lot. Yeah, I, I, he is. And, you know, I'm not trying to downplay his, his you know, dedication or his, you know, his ultimate sacrifice. But I can't help but wonder if that was his intention. Like, I, I'm thinking that he went on the mission he goes on with the intention of, I'm going to take care of this myself and hopefully not get caught. You know, I, I don't think yeah. he was like you know president be damned you know consequences be damned i'm going to end this thing i i don't quite get the impression that he's that kind of guy well i you also know, think he's he's narcissistic enough that he thinks he can get away with anything possibly yeah there's there is that angle too that you know even if he does get caught that maybe he could sway the you know, sway the pop, you know, the populace to his side, you know, and, and make a convincing argument for why it had to be done. But he does, you know, he does run and hide when the authorities show up. And I think that's exactly. Very telling. Yeah, that. Yeah, that to me is exhibit A of him. You know, he, he doesn't want to die and he doesn't want to get caught. Right. Right. He's not like, hey, I found him. Come on. You know. Yeah, but because he knows they are going to take them alive. And he doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't want that to happen. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. And I think he's hiding because he knows I mean, if, if they catch him, you know, they're gonna take, they're gonna pull him away, and they're gonna and they're gonna lock the you know Cornelius and Zira up, and they're gonna uh, obviously they they were going to abort her child, but her child was already born, so they couldn't. I guess they would do a landing on on the baby. Well, I don't understand. I mean, so they were going to sterilize Cornelia and Zira or Cornelius and Zira, why not allow the baby to, because they were going to abort the baby, which I never quite understood. Why not allow the baby to be born and then just sterilize the baby? You know, sterilize all three of them, essentially. Why, why kill the baby and and not even allow it to be born? That, that always seemed to me like really extreme. Well, it's uh, it's giving them a knowledge into what's going to occur that they shouldn't have. Uh, because right. I mean, the, the ultimate downfall of humanity in, in conquest of the planet of the apes and then into battle of the planet of the apes isn't Cornel- uh, Caesar's offspring. It's him. He hmm. leads the apes and, and gets them, you know, to, I guess, reach their potential. Right. So, you know, his, we- his son gets killed. Well, I, I wonder at this point with this movie... You know, as this one was was being made and, you know, was hitting the theaters and all that, like how much thought had there been beyond this point? Because my my understanding and and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but my understanding is that these were each done as a consequence of the last one. Like, you know, the first one comes out, does gangbusters. So they make another one. Second one does really well. So they make a third one. Third one does really well. So the studio demands another one. So, but they weren't really thought out. And I think that's evident by, uh, you know, in the first two sequels, it's little things that, you know, little retcons and little inconsistencies. But by the time you get to the fourth one, there's a big old thing that doesn't add up with the story that 
Cornelius tells, I mean, he basically lays out the history of the Planet of the Apes in this movie, like how it came to be. And not only doesn't the fourth one follow that, it 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 actually uh, it shortens the story by several hundred years, you know. Well, that um, that was always my my sense is that you know what what Cornelius is telling is the uh, you know for for lack of a better term the pre-crisis version of their history, right? And then they come back right. in time, and essentially they've they've back to the future to the thing, and now it's a branch. Because because they're right. coming back and every and that's the ironic thing is all Hasline did was not just make inevitable the the prediction of what was going to happen, but he accelerated it by several hundred years. And and we do I mean it wouldn't even be hundreds of years based on how it plays out in the future movies, but we do eventually have Aldo, who right. who is uh, you know the one that. Cornelius is presenting as the first ape to, to articulate his words. Uh, so, yeah, you, we could go with the theory that they changed history, uh, and and that while Aldo was in their in their past, Aldo was the ape who uh, started the whole ape revolution. Because of the changes in history, it became Caesar. Yeah, you know it's funny. My, my this has always been my head canon. Um, I, I always place the television series in the original time frame, the timeline, um, where we see, um, you know, Verdon and Burke are looking at pictures of Earth from like 500 years in the future. I'm like, that's like the Caesar. I mean, excuse me, that's the the Cornelius timeline that he describes. And then what we see in the films post Escape is, you know, the alternate timeline where it just it all happens faster. It's Planet of it's Planet of the Apes Earth Two. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, then, what do you think of of Caesar telling that story in this movie? Because I like it; it works for me. But when you think about it, it it doesn't really add up. Because where was this knowledge in the first movie? Is this something that he learned in the interim between the first and second movies? It would or, have to be something theory. he learned after the first movie, whether it's between the first and the second or sometime off screen during the second, because he did not have this knowledge in the first movie. There's no question. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I'm wondering if this is a thing where where, you know, he was clued in somehow, uh, you know, either on his own or or by uh, by uh, Dr. Zayas or something like that. But I mean, I see I see clearly as likely because. Because the relationship between Dr. Zayas and Cornelius and Zira in the second film is very genial. Uh, and it's a, it's a marked contrast with uh, their relationship with him in the first one. So I can see that scenario where he's kind of like, look, you're mad at me for this, for destroying the cave. Here's why. Let me tell you. And he lays it out, you know. In my, in my head canon, it was in those sacred scrolls that they walked out of the cave with. Yeah, makes sense to me. And uh, but, you know, it, it also kind of goes with what we were just saying, because I I have found as I get older and more cynical and just come, you know, a get off my lawn kind of guy uh, <laughs> that that I trust what's written in the history books less and less and less. Right. Uh, so with that said, 
even what's in those sacred scrolls may not be accurate. So they may be crediting Aldo with something that really was inaccurate. You know, it's it's just because that's what Cornelius believes is the way it happened doesn't mean it's the way it happened. Right. I, yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, well, I, I I think I, I can say I was just. I'm sorry, Scott. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Zach. Oh, uh, go ahead, Zachy. Uh, no, I, I, well, just just to just to pick up on what you're saying, Paul. I mean, I think ultimately, who spoke, uh, who was the first to speak, is, is is less important than the reason he spoke, which was after after years and years, centuries upon centuries of human bondage and human suffering, he said no, right? And and there's something so primal about that that you it, it, what that really does is it completely shifts. Uh, the locus of the entire series, you know, because because when you watch the first film, uh, to, to a large extent, you know, you're so firmly on on Taylor's side. And then this film, you know, because we're following Cornelius and Zira, there are point of focus anyway. But when you hear the story, like, how did apes take over? It was because it, it unlike the novel where human beings essentially just gave up. This is the this is this is after centuries of cruelty from humans apes said we have had enough and that's something that that it's impossible not to to sympathize with yeah and it's obviously making a you know a societal commentary and you know we have we definitely have some uh i I think this one more than any other sequel embraces some of the satire from the uh from the first movie and the commentary from the first movie yeah absolutely absolutely and and it's interesting in in today's world with you know the media so prevalent and social media and everything it's interesting to see you know in 1970 what was it 73 uh oh no 71 excuse me in 1971 what this you know the social media and the you know is is as far as uh promoting these two as as you know heroes to the people and everything uh, I, I just find it fascinating to watch now and, and you know see where we've gone historically, huh. right? But you know, moving on to, he, I mean, he had such a small part, but I think he was so charming, uh, Ricardo Montalban. Oh yeah, you oh, yeah. know, he, he was he it's so easy, you know, he was he was so not he was so not con, uh, <laughs> but. He effectively, you know, it's funny because, you know, we're talking about Otto Hasslein, who is, you know, pretty much ruthless in, in his mission. And then we talk about Armando, who couldn't be more sympathetic and, and likable. And yet in his own way, he kind of laid the groundwork for the for humanity's downfall. Huh. Well, I, see, I... I don't know. I mean, it, it's I'm of two minds on that because because I think, uh, you know, at least if we go with the, the theatrical release of Conquest, he he laid the groundwork for Caesar's uh, mercy. Right. Where he says, put down your weapons. Right. If, uh, you know, because because what see what what Armando says in Escape, Caesar echoes in Conquest. Right. If it is man's destiny to dominate, then please, God, let him be dominated by those such as you. Right. Mm-hmm. And he says, if it is man's destiny to be dominated, then it is God's will that he be dominated with compassion, right? Like, 
like that's what he taught Caesar. So in other words, what we see like between Armando and 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 Hasline are two different views of destiny. Right. Destiny is immutable. Destiny can be changed. And I think ultimately these movies do the the ultimate message, I think, is that to some extent they can be changed. But, you know, right. It, it, you know, it, it, it isn't going with the 100% butterfly effect that if you change one thing, everything is going to be different. Uh, but, you know, maybe maybe you, you've hit on a point there that I, I find interesting in that if we go with the two different timelines that are in, in the Cornelius and Zira's histories timeline, it's Aldo who starts the uh, the ape revolution. And that leads to human hunts and things like that. But because we're branching off into this one where the person who the ape who started the revolution has been taught compassion and love by Armando. Ultimately, (laughs) through through the magic of redubbing uh, (laughs) at the end end of the fourth film, he gives a speech that gives compassion. And in the fifth film, even though I'm getting ahead of myself here, he's creating a world where apes and humans can live together in harmony rather than have, you know, human hunts. Yeah. I, I, I think if I can draw a connection to the, the modern trilogy, the Caesar trilogy, you know, I think we see that uh, more directly played out in, in that you have, you know, you've got the, the dichotomy between, between Andy Serkis's Caesar and, and Koba, right? One right. Caesar being the product of, uh, being loved by a human he sees um you know that's his experience and then koba who's just his entire body is evidence of human cruelty and how you know and if we think of koba as like the aldo of those films um those are the parallels i think i think it's it's more it's given more expression in in the modern trilogy but that's very much at play with mcdowell caesar mm-hmm yeah, I, I would agree with you, and and I think you know, storytelling has changed somewhat, and I think we've you know we've we've gone somewhere different with the modern movies, but I think you know if we leave aside the Tim Burton one, I I, I think uh, I, I find myself very happy with where the eight movies went ultimately, yeah. but being a glutton, yeah. and I absolutely am when I like a character. Uh, I know we're off this movie for a moment, but I, I still find myself very sad that they killed off Caesar at the end of, uh, of of the trilogy, and and that you know we're not getting more of that. But then again, right now it does. I don't see anything on the horizon anyway, and I'm saddened by that because I was so happy that well, the apes a made a uh, comeback. I have a thought on that. Um, I, I love what you know. What is so far just a trilogy? The new trilogy, uh, supposedly um, Disney has greenlit further films, so supposedly we're going to be getting something more is coming. Something, something is coming. Yeah. yeah. So you know that said, I, I have loved them. I, I I thought they were fantastic films. I, I enjoyed all of them very much. If I really have any major quibble with them. It's just simply the fact that they retconned this film away, you know, just by their existence. And that's kind of a shame. But where they could kind of redeem that somewhat for me is if somewhere down the line in in the sequels, um, we do see uh, Aldo. You know, if I'm kind of wondering if uh, if Andy Serkis is going to pull a Roddy McDowell where he will play like his own son or his own descendant 
at some point, you know, in the further, I, I haven't heard whether he's going to be attached to further films or not, but I, I can't really imagine he, he won't be. He's such a huge and integral part of those movies that I kind of hope he does uh, do that because that that was one of the you know the the real magic parts of the original uh, what would you call it quintet of movies is that you know Roddy McDowell um, you know for giving the, the second movie that he's not actually in um, is kind of the through line in that you know with his you know carrying on you know being Caesar and everything after uh, you know Cornelius uh, perishes in this movie. So I, I kind of hope that they parallel that and they keep going, but you know that's entirely up to Circus. I don't know, you know. <laughs> He's a busy guy. Yeah, he is. That's yeah. for sure. But yes, now, <laughs> yeah, certainly CGI would let him play a different character, and you know, there's, there's no no issue with that. Um, is is Natalie Trundy in every sequel? Yes. So um, she's she she becomes almost yeah, a through line too in her own she, way. That's right. Yeah, she's she's yeah she yeah, plays. She's, uh, she plays Lisa in the fourth and fifth one. So, yeah. But, I mean, her role in the fourth one is fairly minimal, but she's in them all. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was trying to think is the is the fifth one, because I remember that she was the mutant girl in the second one. Yeah. She's uh, was the she, doctor assistant in this. Was and that then a, she was the, Albina? Was that not? Uh, Albina, yeah. That's Albina, right. yeah, I think that's her name, yeah. Yeah. And then I remember she was like the girlfriend ape or whatever you want to call her in the fourth one, but I couldn't remember if she was in the fifth one. <laughs> now one of yeah, the things it's, it's, in the in the theatrical cut they they gave her you know they have her say no, and that's what prompts Caesar's like change of heart in the theatrical cut. Yeah, so she, she, she also right, she yeah. also trumps Aldo. Yeah right. <laughs> but uh, th- wasn't I mean, she? She was a girlfriend or or wife or something of somebody important connected with the movie, right? Well, that's uh, Arthur Jacobs. She was his yeah. wife. I thought okay. it was. Uh, I thought what's it? Linda Harrison was. No, Linda Harrison was um, Richard Zanuck's wife, uh, girlfriend slash wife. Um, so he was the studio head who greenlit the studio, but Arthur Jacobs, his wife was was Natalie Trundy. Oh, okay. I, yeah. I, I was unaware cool. of that. But to, to me, part of the beauty of this movie is it's one of the movies that I, I think of as an all-ages film. Uh, I saw this, you know, as, as, well, it's 1971, so I was eight years old at the time. Yes, I'm older than you guys. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, I, I loved it from then when I couldn't understand some of the subtleties of the satire and the moral dilemmas and all of that. And there's never been a point where I didn't love this movie. So... <laughs> You know, I, I think that's one of the great things about it. What's this one rated? Is this one a G? Because I know the first one is a G. Is this G as well? Yeah, they're all G except for yes. Conquest. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll give you that. You know, the the all ages thing. You know, with you know with the asterisks that it's all ages so long as you feel your your child could handle something like say Bambi because you know it, it's going to have that same potentially scarring effect because that's why this movie stuck with me when I was a kid is the way it ends that, that end, you know, that ending to the film is, uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's right up there with like, you know, the, the first movie and, you know, it's up there with, you know, traumatic childhood moments like Bambi's mother being killed. You know, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a real punch in the gut 
uh, ending to the story because you really do come come to care for the characters so much. And, you know, that that seems like such an odd thing to say that, you know, that I love the characters, but I do. You know, you, you really come to, to really care for and love uh, Cornelius and Zira, and it's just so tragic what happens to them in the in the film. No, uh, I, I, that speaks to the power of both of those actors, you know, Roddy McDowell and Kim Hunter. They're just wonderful in this. Oh, absolutely. And I'm <laughs> shocked that they weren't recommended for you know, for more accolades or awards or something, because they didn't give, give accolades the... and awards to science fiction movies back then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's, it's a shame because for them to, to give the performance they do and to emote the way that they do under such heavy prosthesis is, is amazing when you think about it. Cause there's a, a, a lot that they, they couldn't do you know facial expression wise yet they managed to do it anyway you know through their their eyes and their body language and through their gestures and and so they're still able to convey those emotions and they play off each other so well in this they they are like some sort of like classic old married couple and, and they're just <laughs> wonderful. well I, there's, I, I, there's I, a lot of moving pieces in this movie as far as acting goes but when i break it down to its you know its components this is kim hunter's movie oh yeah if you really look at it i mean she's the one who carries the emotion in here roddy mcdowell is kind of he's a major supporting actor but he's a supporting actor to her you know he he's he's not carrying the, the weight of this film she is She's doing the interviews. She's the one who's who's getting pregnant. She's the one who, you know, has to get tricked by Hasline into uh, saying what she does. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on, and I think she really, really did a great job with it. And I, I agree with you that that the performance is worthy of at least nominations for an award. Uh, but you know, that, that was never going to happen back in 1971. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> It is a shame. Apparently, from something I read just today, uh, I wasn't aware of this before, but apparently, while she was you know, glad to be in the movie and, and enjoyed Zira and everything, apparently she was also very relieved to be killed off in this one. And uh, that kind of <laughs> surprised me, because I, I wonder if that's a big contributing factor to why I don't care as much for the fourth and fifth one. I mean, I, I like the fourth one in its own way. I, I think it is... Uh, far inferior to what came before it and then five to me is frankly barely watchable but i I wonder if that's why is because she's not in them and she was such a a big part of the first three and such a a likable character you know especially in this one well we we could debate the fifth one when we get there because you know you and i are, (laughs) are definitely counterpoints on that one but uh yeah i mean i i think she she is a big part of the emotional component of this movie she she's the reason you love cornelius and zira you know you know what one one thing that occurs to me i think what what the film also does very smartly i mean obviously we like these characters from before anyway but they have them repeatedly say how much they love taylor right and and I think that's so important. You know, we have Cornelius say, we did know Taylor. We grew to love him, you know. And then Zira, when, even when she's under the influence, under truth serum, she's like, we love Taylor. We did everything we You know, and, and how important that is for us in the audience, because we love Taylor for all of his flaws. He, that's our guy, damn it, you know. 
And, 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 you that's know, our that, misanthrope. That's our misanthrope. That's, that's our Chuck, you know? And, and I think that itself is, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a little thread in terms of the story construction, but they made, they took pains to have them say twice, we loved Taylor. And I, I think that's just one more piece of very smart story construction to make, to put us firmly on Cornelius and Zira's side. Yeah, I agree. And I didn't really, I never really made that connection. What, what do we think of Speaking the... Speaking of that, that, something occurred to me while I was watching this last night. And it's funny, I love movies like this where you can see them a million times and you're going to pick up something new or you're going to think about some different thread when you watch it over and over again. And something that never occurred to me before, I, I love the opening to this movie. I think it has maybe you know one of the, the top openings ever to a movie. It's just you know that, that hook of them... Arriving in the, you know on the beach on the spaceship, getting out, taking off their helmets, and it's apes. I mean, what a great opening to a movie. I mean, if you're not hooked, then then the movie's not going to work for you, you know. But it, it occurred to me watching it last night that they never stopped for a moment to ask, wait, did something happen to the astronauts? Is this Taylor and his crew somehow devolved into apes? <laughs> and I'm kind of surprised that that never comes up. It's just they they embrace them as if they're completely different beings, which they are. But it's just funny that that thought never comes up. I don't know if they <laughs> just true. want to derail things. but <laughs> like, like you don't have like Dodge's wife being like, where's my husband? You know, Right. Because <laughs> it's only been like, what, two years, right, in the, in the timeline of the movies? My God, has Stuart changed? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 that thought I can honestly tell you has never occurred to me, and I, I, I do like what you say, where you, you know, if you can watch it, for you know, who knows how many times I've seen this movie, and if you could watch it that many times and enjoy it as much as I have, and yet still not have even gotten to that point yet, <laughs> I think that that says something <laughs> for it. Uh, what, what do we think of the uh, truncated performance from Salminio? I think I think he 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 does what is uh, asked of him. I think I think uh, uh, Roddy McDowell and and Kim Hunter gave some interviews where they they talked about how he was just miserable in that makeup. So he couldn't have been happier to just get croaked inside of five minutes. <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, he's there as Basil Exposition. That's basically he's there for one scene to be like, all right, so check it out. Here's what happened. We were there. Now we're here. Ugh! You know, that's. <laughs> Well, I, I do. I do like when, when Cornelius, like you know, is trying to defend Zira as he's berating her, and and he's got to like explain himself away in his clumsy, socially inept kind of way. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I get a kick out of that. I I think you know, I thought for for such a short performance, he was kind of. I thought he. I felt like he was fully formed. I'm, I'm I like fairly... that he's oh, become sorry, yeah. a pretty popular character in uh you know in the. I guess you'd call it expanded universe. You know, the the novels and the and the comics and that sort of thing have wanted to expand on his character because I think he is a, a fascinating character, despite the fact that you know he's really not in the movie for very long. I think just the the very fact that you know he's credited as the one that salvaged the ship, recovered it, you know, got it operational again, and half understood it. That's fascinating, you know, and it <laughs> makes you want to know more about the character. 
I don't think. I, I, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, the, the, what you mentioned about, uh, you know, he says, Zero, have you gone mad or are you mad? And don't call my wife mad. He says, I'm not, I'm not calling her. I'm asking if she is. I can't tell you how many times <laughs> I have done that in my life where I'm like, what are you, some kind of an idiot or something? Don't call me an idiot. No, I'm asking if you are one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, then it's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, you know, I don't think there's anybody else whose performance in and of itself stands out that we need to break it down. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about the technical aspects oh, of the movie. Uh, oh, is there some? Who else did you want to talk about? I think uh, William Wyndham is the I president. Was, I was going to say, awesome. yeah, I think he's great in this. Yeah. I, yeah. I, see, I have a tough time seeing William Wyndham and not thinking of him as the guy looking at uh, the advertising thing at the beginning of Planes, Trains, and <laughs> Automobiles. Right. <laughs> That's funny because I I look at him and I think uh, Decker from Decker uh, from the Doomsday Machine. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Or or he was actually and this is this is gonna date me seriously, but he was the father on Please Don't Eat the Daisies. Uh, a sitcom from the oh 1970s. Oh my God! Yeah. So those those are the things. Those are the roles that all stand out to me from him. But yeah, I mean, yeah, he did do a good job as the president, and and you know, you see him trying to walk that fine line to make sure everybody's gonna love him. <laughs> the two others that that jump out to me every time I watch it, I, I you know, you were talking about great performances. They're not great performances. I just like that they're in the movie is John Randolph, who's the chairman. Mm-hmm. Um, he's yeah, probably like going to be best remembered as Clark Griswold's father in Christmas Vacation. But I always remember him as the captain of the, the I think it's the Exxon or whatever the ship is, in uh, in the remake of King Kong. Oh, he, yeah. Was, yeah, he has a, right. a couple of really good scenes against uh, uh, Charles Grodin in well, that. He, he could easily be a that guy actor because he's been in he, so many oh, yeah. things. Yeah, you know, they, he, they very much is. I, he he was the original Frank Costanza yes. on Seinfeld before they cast Jerry Stiller. Uh, and in the uh, the DVDs, they actually have both versions of the yeah, uh, right. of the scene. That's that's you know, I mean, I know we're going off topic here but that's the i think the only time in sitcom history where they recast a role and then they actually refilmed it after it had been aired to to put the new actor in the in the spot so i think you know other than like watching it on tv you'll never see the version with him in it right yeah he's he's one of those guys that i always have to stop and think when i see him in something i always have to stop and think for a minute wait is this john randolph or is this rance howard because they were they both had that thing where they were in Same like every movie, you know between the two of them you pretty much got every movie covered the only other one i wanted to mention um he he's another one of those you know those guys you know that that guy that was in like every single movie was uh m emmett walsh and he doesn't do much in this but i just love that he's in it his I voice is so guy. distinctive mm-hmm. See, to me yep. he, he didn't stand and this out. is about the skinniest i ever saw him too. yeah <laughs> he like i had to look for him because you know i'm i'm used to em, em, emmett walsh from 30 years later Right. <laughs> so to see him in this, it's like, oh, oh, that's him. Oh, wow. You know, he uh, was uh, right. he was Barry Allen's dad in the uh, in the Flash yep. 1990 series. That's what I remember most from. I think it's the first time I saw him was in that. 
first time I ever saw him was, uh, and this is probably what I'll always remember him as, is uh, he was Dickie Dunn in uh, Slapshot. He was the, the reporter that was Paul Newman's friend. Oh, wow. Oh, I forgot that one. But he was in. I mean, like I say, he's been. He was in *Race the Titanic* too. He's he's been in a million movies. He and he's just one of those that guys, you know, in the background. <laughs> what what did you guys like? I said to get a little bit more into the technical. What did you think of uh, the direction in this movie? I think it's very well directed. But something occurred to me last night. I I've never I had never seen this movie on the big screen, um, and I was trying to i was anticipating you asking like when did you first see it and i don't really remember i'm almost positive i first saw the movie probably on like an afternoon like wpi act showing or something like that you know like a midday movie type of thing but i really don't remember but i i never seen it on the big screen i never had the opportunity to see it on the big screen and watching it last night, not to brag, but, you know, as Paul knows, I just recently finished my theater room and now I have my own theater. I have a, a big screen. So I watched it and it really occurred to me that it kind of has a made for TV movie quality to it, mm-hmm. not quite a theatrical quality to it. And I don't mean that as as a negative. Um, I, I it, it's It's one of those things like. You know, a lot of people will will knock certain Star Trek movies and say that oh, that was just that was just a big screen version of an episode of the TV show. That's kind of what this movie feels a lot like to me is because it's more character driven, because it's more cerebral, because it's more asking those moral questions and and it creates those moral dilemmas that don't really have an answer. It feels a lot like an old episode of Star Trek to me. And so it feels, again, kind of like a big screen TV movie. And I like that. I don't mean it in any way as a negative, but it does lack that that big screen quality as far as like, you know, you've got to go to the cinema to see this movie on the big It doesn't have that. Huh. Whereas, like the first movie does, the first movie you know is is made that much cooler when you get to see it on the big screen because it's a big screen spectacle type movie with like grand vistas and really incredible direction. This one not so much. It's a character piece, so you huh. you can watch it on TV or you can watch it on the big screen, but it doesn't really add anything. That that was my takeaway anyway. Uh, you know, w- one thing I would say, and 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 I'll I'll. I'll agree with what Scott says. The other thought I have is I think of the four sequels, this is really the only one that uh, the budget doesn't demolish sort of the verisimilitude of the film, notwithstanding the one like right. the guy in the monkey suit in the zoo. For the Oof. most part, they're, they're like, I mean, that's like something out of, you know. John Landis? Um, <laughs> Um, that 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 was Landis, right? In the in in um in in the monkey suit, wasn't Land, Landis in is it? battle? For I, it the wouldn't Planet surprise me, is it? I thought Landis was in battle. Oh, in battle, that's what I'm thinking. Because oh, I I remember just the story from that is John Landis talking to John Huston on the set, and you know saying you know John Huston, you've been a great director, you've been a great actor, you know why are you here? And he says something to the effect of you don't turn down a paycheck. <laughs> 
in front for like five See, I was just screenplay. joking. I had no idea. Is that really true? John Landis is in one of the Apes movies? He's, yes. he's in number five. He's in number five. That's, that's right. awesome. <laughs> I, was, I was totally kidding, but that's really funny. Look at that. <laughs> but, but I mean, for, with this one, they're like, all right, we got like $5 to make this movie. We can't have big hordes of, of guys right like with beneath it's like you got you really got to squint past some of the special effects and the big crowds and stuff and and you know that that, that also applies for four and five i think with this one they made they they wrote a film that suited its budget and and i i appreciated that like it is it, in terms of scope it's night and day from from the original film uh like like you said it this is not franklin schaffner with the big vistas and everything else um but i think i I think that the part of the reason this one is so well regarded among the sequels is because of that because for the most part it it's it's a story that suits its budget and you can't say that necessarily about the other ones because because conquest uh, you know i mean it's very obvious that they were they just it was just a lot of like let's put on a show but they they did not have the money to tell that story the way they needed to. But see, I, I, I agree with both of you totally. And uh, yeah, I do think it, it has almost a feel of a TV movie. Uh, but but I, but it's okay because the, like you said, yeah. Zachy, they, they wrote the story to fit that. And think yeah. about the scope. You know, we talk about how these movies end on a downer. The first movie ends where, you know, we see that the earth as we know it is destined to be virtually destroyed and taken over by apes in the second movie it is literally destroyed in this one we're all sad because two people who or two apes who we've grown to care about get killed i mean the scope is 100 percent different yeah but each one has its own little gut punch to it in its own way and i give i give john taylor some credit for being able to bring that to its fruition in this movie I, I think he. I think he did. He he did not make a spectacle. He did not make a, uh, you know, a, a big artistic movie. What he did was he took a, a, a smaller story, and he presented it in a very easily followed way, and he never put the attention on himself as the director. And I think that's right. it was a success. I think it was a success because of that. I think if he had done it differently. We we might have had trouble watching this movie. I'm gonna go to you, Scott, because you are my score guy. What do you think of Goldsmith's score in this movie? <laughs> I was hoping you were going to ask me. Um, it took me a long time to fall in love with this score, but I I have since fallen in love with it. Um, it, it is actually one that I listen to quite often. Um, I think it it took me a long time to decide that it works because it's so very different from not only the first score because this is the only other film of the series that Jerry Goldsmith composed because you know he he wrote the first one and the score to the original Planet of the Apes is iconic it's one of his greatest and it's incredibly cutting edge you know it was it was very revolutionary it's very different from anything that had ever been done you know it was very experimental and it totally works for that film however this is a completely different kind of movie and that score wouldn't work for this movie so he had to come up with something different and it is very different 
and there's a lot of 70s kind of janky jank stuff in there and that takes a while to get used to and for me i used to find that incredibly distracting and it it took a while to figure out why did he go that route and i think it was because he wanted it to he wanted certain beats of the movie certain aspects of the movie to feel very present day because that's the setting. And, and he, he was using the music to counterpoint the first movie to, to do the same thing. The movie itself is doing is, you know, it's, it's taking the first movie and it's flip flopping it. And that's exactly what the music does for the most part with this movie is the music also flip flops. It's modern day. It's very modern. It, it has a very, um, you know, now sound, but then listen to the score. If you pay attention to it, all of that drops away at the midway point where the story mm-hmm. changes. And after the story changes and goes from the very light, because there's a lot of light stuff. There's, and I love, love, love the track uh, in the movie where they are the media darlings and they're taken out and they get new clothes and. All of that. The, the music's just wonderful during that, but it could kind of go with any like romantic comedy movie of the period. But then after things shift and the tone of the movie shifts and it becomes the darker movie that's headed towards that tragic ending, there's a lot more what I, you know, in air quotes, classic Planet of the Apes in there. There's a lot more ape sounding music, a lot more of the, um, kind of the instrumentation he was using in the first movie to denote this is an ape sequence this you know you you don't even have to see what's going on all you have to do is listen to the music and you know okay there's apes on the screen during this part because of what (laughs) he's telling you and there's a lot of that um right up to the end of the movie and then the end of the movie itself i don't know what the instruments are i i suspect there's symbols being dragged against each other i'm not sure it's that kind of kind of sound it almost sounds like waves hitting the shore. That's how the first movie ends after the reveal of the Statue of Liberty on the beach. Mm-hmm. After Zira and Cornelius are killed in this movie, it does the exact same thing. So the the endings mirror each other in the music, and I really love that. It's not as strong a score as Planet of the Apes or, or frankly, a lot of his other scores. But it does work both in the movie very effectively and it works for the most part as a standalone album that you could just listen to. And uh, yeah, it's it's a really good one. I like this one a lot. Any uh, any thoughts on it, Zach? Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm a fan of, of uh, uh, what Goldsmith did right away to, to, to distinguish it from from the other film. Like, it, you know, it it there's you know, I think I think Goldsmith uh you know, especially like with the Star Trek scores, he would develop certain certain light motifs, and and we, to the best of my knowledge, he doesn't carry any motifs, uh, thematic motifs forward, uh, and and I kind of appreciated that that he was just like, no, we're just going to do something different. And I think when you look at the five scores, you know, you've got two by Goldsmith, two by two by Rosenman, and with with both of these composers their two scores are very different from each other which i appreciate and it makes me enjoy listening to all of the albums yeah i i particularly like the uh the title sequence in this i feel like it really from the point they take the helmets off it, it kind of picks up on the music and it 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 
you know, it does what I what I always say I want it to do. It enhances the scene without calling so much attention to itself that you stop watching the scene. So I, I really like that. And, and yeah, like you said, Scott, the way it changes with the tone of the movie is also, you know, really well done. I, I felt like it was, you know, really solid. Uh, and before we get to rating, is there any other point? Well, you know what? Actually, I, I'm forgetting. I wanted, I did want to turn this on its ear a little bit and go to the, the question I usually ask in the beginning and ask it now. Because I, unless my memory is wrong, Zachy, was this the, the first movie that you saw? Of, of this series? No, I saw the first one and then this one. Okay. So this was my, so I saw this before Beneath. Like Beneath was my white whale that, you know, I had, I had only heard tell of and I had no idea. But this, this one, I, uh, a friend, this is when I was living in Saudi Arabia. They, they, um, lived on a compound that had satellite. Uh, so they were able to get American movies and stuff. So they taped, uh, Planet and Escape together. And they gave those to me. So these were the first two that I saw. I saw them as a, as a unit. Okay. And I'm, I'm suspecting that you enjoyed it. I, I did enjoy it. I, I will say this. Uh, my my admiration for it has grown. Like when I first saw it, it 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 was just too different from, to me from the first one. right? And I didn't really have that sort of the bridge of beneath. So, so for me, uh, my concept of Planet of the Apes, which was shaped by... But not only by the first film, but also by the television, or rather the animated series. That was like I was like, well, that's what it's supposed to be like. So I was like, ah, I don't know about this. It's, it it didn't have the scope and the scale. So I didn't. I I thought it was fine, but I didn't like it as much. I distinctly remember that. And and it was really, I would say, for the for the uh, um, the thirtieth anniversary. You know, when they released the VHS set and they had the the Roddy McDowell documentary and stuff. And that was when I was really able to experience the entire series. Uh, you know, holistically, that's when I really was like, oh, this is the best out of all the sequels. Like, that was when I really plugged into it. Did you have any problem, like, did, did it disturb you uh, as far as trying to figure out story-wise what went on, or, or were you able to just kind of say, okay, they're on Earth, and you know, they're on present-day Earth, and just move forward? Yeah, surprisingly, no. Yeah, I, 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 I caught on to the premise pretty quickly. And I, I'm like, as you as you asked me a question, I'm like, like, did I know anything about beneath above and beyond what's what's alluded to in the movie? I don't believe so. Um, but yeah, I I had no problem being like, oh, that's Taylor's ship, and you know, it's almost it's almost better that the movie doesn't really explicitly refer to like Brent or the mutants or anything like that, because then I really would have been lost. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, but I was like, okay, well, something happened in the second one, the world blew up. Like that was enough for me, you know? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's an interesting thing that, you know, you're right. It doesn't really directly refer to the second movie. You know, the only references I can really think is that, you know, the earth got destroyed. Um, and then it carries forward the retcon from the second yeah, movie that, right. that frankly has always bugged me a little bit totally that, agree that um uh taylor's mission was kind of this this lost in space type of scenario that that always bugged me just a little bit um and they yeah. you know they do carry that forward in this there's the mention uh you know of, of you know taylor's lost you know they've been lost for i think it's like three years or something like that at this point um but yeah that's pretty much it they pretty much just you know 
they they don't contradict anything from the second one, but they don't really talk about it either. So they're not like, oh, did you know, uh, you know, Commander, whatever, Skipper, whatever his name is, you know, they <laughs> yeah. they didn't know his name, so they're like, oh, let's just not refer to him. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I never thought about that. Yeah, they clear, you know, they asked several times about Taylor. They never ask about. Poor Brent and the skipper. <laughs> Nobody cared about You know, that. the guy that went blind. Uh, we'll yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, for me, I had, you know, I had seen Planet of the Apes in the movies. Then I think I saw Beneath the Planet of the Apes in the movies. And then I think I saw Planet of the Apes and Beneath the Planet of the Apes in a double feature. All before this movie ever came out. Wow. So I was totally indoctrinated by the time this movie came out. And, uh... You know, I, I I just loved my apes. What could I tell you? <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm jealous because it wasn't until fairly recently, it's within the past couple of years that I finally got to see the original apes on the big screen. I yeah, I, me I too. never had I I'd never even had the opportunity until what was it? Must have been the 50th anniversary, I think. Uh, back in yeah, they they did no, like that was a, too long ago. It was 2000. Uh, I, I can't remember. It was some anniversary or something. It came back to theaters, and I and I got I finally got to see it. I I, I think you and I saw it as part of the same thing. There was like a national rollout where, um, the uh, God I, sh- I forget what the the name is, but it was it was like a national thing where they they uh, put it out to to certain theaters. Yeah, I, I can't right. remember oh, yeah, the name either been, now, but they, I mean they were that doing that whole thing yeah, where they were showing a lot of 2018. Yeah, that's that's right. That would have been the fiftieth. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's. Yeah, uh, I think that's I, I did I not get it. to see it in that particular rollout, but I had seen it, oh, probably four or five times in the movies back in the 1960s and 70s. So I can't complain. Wow. Uh, For me, I, I always have, I have a lot of trouble keeping it all straight because it, it's just you know the original Apes came out the year I was born, so it's just one of those things where it was just kind of always there, you know. Um. But I didn't really become like I, I always loved the first movie and I'd seen the first movie a bunch of times. Two and three, I don't even know if I'd ever seen them complete, like start start to finish. But I'd seen like bits and pieces and I knew the basic story and everything. I, I wouldn't say I was like a, you know necessarily a fan or anything like that. It was just, you know, fun movies I had seen as a kid, but had vague memories of kind of thing. Hmm. But I was working in video like in in the infancy of video sales uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. And I became a huge Apes fan when CBS Fox Home Video put them out for the very first time on videocassette. And we got uh, these, they, they were special releases from CBS Fox that were sent to the store. Um, it was a trailer loop that would just run. I forget how long it was. And it showed a lot of clips from the films. It had a lot of interviews with all, you know everybody associated with the movies. Um, some of the stuff was vintage, and then some of the stuff was new. And it was just a it was just a promo reel, but it was so fascinating to me. And there was enough of it that I was like, I kind of remember that. But there was also a lot of like, oh, I didn't, I never knew that type of thing. To where I, I bought the box set and took it home and just devoured it and. It was in that process of of watching them, you know, start to finish complete and in order that that's where I really fell in love with this, you know, this one in particular, because I had always loved the first one. I kind of 
I have kind of a love hate thing with the second one. There's a lot of it I like. There's a lot of it I really can't stand. And and I love this one. And then you know there's the fourth and fifth one. So, but this <laughs> is the one I just kept coming back to over and over and over again. And and being you know every time I watch it, I'm struck anew. Like, wow, this is such a good movie. And you know why don't more people seem to to even know that it exists? You know, because you know the the first movie is is a classic. And I think. For the most part, I think the first one, because of, you know, what it is, I guess, you know, just all the magic parts it has kind of escapes the stigma that this one seems to get. Because whenever I mention this or whenever I, I'd sit down and watch this with, like, you know, my wife in the room or, or other people, it was always that kind of thing. of like, oh, God, you know, the first <laughs> one doesn't seem to elicit that reaction, but this one does. And it's one of those things where you got you have to kind of beg people like, no, 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 stay in there. You want to watch this. It's actually really good. But you kind of have to convince them because it just it, it looks I don't know. It, it it just if they're not into it already, then it just looks cheesy and goofy to them, I guess. I, I don't I don't really know why. Mm-hmm. Have you had that experience as well? I would say it's pretty accurate for the most part. I think I think if you, you know. I really do think, you you know, you really do kind of need the background of having seen at least the first one to truly appreciate this one. You know, as a kid, you might be able to just kind of overlook it and roll with it. But I think to truly appreciate it, you need to have seen the first one. Just another nostalgic thought about this one, and it does kind of enter into the the critique of it, is, you know, when, when they were showing these on TV in the 70s, uh, it was before, you know, VHS was, was, you know, made public. Uh, so, you know, you'd see it, I guess, on probably on CBS at the time, I think. Uh, could have been ABC. I'm not really sure. But whatever network was airing these movies. And then, you know, as a, you know, pre-adolescent or uh, pre-teen or whatever I was uh, at the time, uh, you know, you'd sit there with your little portable cassette recorder recording the, uh, the, the the sound from the movie off the TV set, and then you you know you re you re listen to it because you couldn't rewatch it back then. And yep. of the Planet of the Apes movies, this is the one by far that lent itself to that practice the most. This is the one that I kept on an audio cassette for quite a while, and I would re listen to it because the other ones are much more visual than this one. This one is more in its own way cerebral and dialogue heavy so this this one lent itself to that practice much better and i think that goes you know that takes us full circle to what you said earlier zaki is where you know they they actually tailored the script a little bit to their budget i agree yeah so all that said i think it's time that we rate this movie who'd like to go first (laughs) Um, I, I'll say uh, um, it, it's not Jaws, but it's Jaws 2. Okay. Scott? Oh, I, I have wrestled with this one probably more than any other one that, uh, that you've had me on for as to what I was going to say at this moment, and I'm still not sure. Um there's there's arguments both ways for Jaws and Jaws 2 and and I'm really I'm stuck right in the middle because I want so badly to give it a Jaws because for me it's it's right up there on that level it's it's one of my absolute favorite movies 
But well, I'm going I'm to interrupt you, you, you just to, to kind of give you a little criteria here. This is uh-huh. your rating. You don't have to right. worry about if other people will necessarily agree with your rating. So if well, no, you know, to you, no, if it's yours, that. then it's yours. Uh, but you know, if if you look at it, well, you know, you remove yourself from that, and it's not quite at that level, then you give that. But you know, whatever, whatever, whatever rating you give it, you know, there there is no right or wrong. Is my point. Right. No, it's to me though is is that you know I I can't just because I love you know a movie I you know. I, I can't come on to the show and every single movie I do is going to be Jaws. That, that's just that that gets ridiculous and you lose credibility just because you love it doesn't necessarily mean it's Jaws. Um, so I've been trying to justify, like, if I say this is Jaws because I love it, can I back that up with why I think it's Jaws? And I'm not entirely sure that I can. Um I do think the acting is very strong in the movie. I, I think, again, that Roddy McDowell and Kim Hunter uh, deliver just amazing performances. I think they, they absolutely carry the film. And I think there's some other really good performances in there, too. We never talked about the dude that plays uh, Lewis, uh, you know, the doctor. Um, I can't remember the actor's Bradford name, but he's really good in it, too. So, I mean, I think it's got solid performances. I think the story is is airtight. I mean, I think it's a it's a really solid story that makes you think about a lot of different issues. And it's engaging in, in the way like the very best Star Trek episodes are. And, and you know, I keep coming back to Star Trek because that that's, you know, I have a, a healthy respect for intelligent science fiction that's not just a bunch of laser bolts and explosions and robots, but it, it has a message and it makes you think about something and, and it sticks with you after the viewing, which is definitely what this movie does. This movie has stuck with me all my life because I feel for the characters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, are those reasons enough to, to rate it a Jaws? And, and I'm not, I'm not actually sure. It's, I almost wish the show was, you know, is it, city on the edge of forever because yes it's that you know but, but is it jaws um i wish there was a rating between jaws one and jaws two because that's where it would actually fall like a like a jaws 1.5 it's not <laughs> right there but it's better than jaws two you know so um i i think in fairness i'm gonna have to say it's a jaws two but damn you know again that you know it goes to, you know, what Scott Rifen says at the beginning of, of each episode, you know, that the, the Jaws movies themselves are not reflective of the actual Jaws exactly. scale because, you know, Jaws 2 just doesn't seem high enough for this movie and, and for how I really feel about it. But is it the classic that Jaws is? Um, not not quite, unfortunately. It's it's not even Planet of the Apes. It's it's the best sequel to the Planet of the Apes, but it's not even Planet of the Apes, so... So it's not. I I just like to say I I told I'm totally down Scott with everything you're saying. So I want you to know, like you're not out in the weeds, like what you're saying. <laughs> that, because it is it is a it's it's a damn good movie, and yes. to say it's not Planet of the Apes is not like uh, that's not a ding against it. That's just a statement of how damn good Planet of the Apes is. Yeah, and and absolutely, you know the. There's room in Jaws 2 for movies that are excellent. And I do yes. think I, I'm I'm here with you guys and I'm 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 also at Jaws 2 for it. 
Uh, and that's not to say it's not an excellent movie. That's to say it's not an all-time classic movie in its own way, even though, to me, it does kind of fit the criteria that you'd need because I can sit and watch this any time. If I'm flipping through the channels and this is on, I'm stopping and I'm watching it. And I'm going to be entertained yeah. by it any time. And the script is very clever and, and intelligently written. And the acting is top-notch. And, you know, as you mentioned, the score gives a lot of things that, you know, that, that are really just, you know, carry carry the movie along with it. The direction is, is, is solid. There's, there really is no significant weakness unless we go to, you know, what Zaki mentioned with the uh, the ape costume at the beginning, or the gorilla costume at the beginning. But be, beyond that, I, I don't really have any kind of negatives to point to in this movie. I don't. So in its own way, it kind of fits the criteria to be Jaws. It just doesn't have quite the epic nature of what I think you need to have to get that ranking. So it's it's right. a solid Jaws 2 that I would recommend to anybody who has listened to us talk about it and thinks, oh, I might be entertained by that. Then it's a Jaws 2. So I want to thank you guys for coming on. Uh, thank you. Ma- thank making you. time in your busy days to uh, discuss this movie with me. And, you know, as I said, you know, the three of us and, and Rich are probably the biggest Planet of the Apes fans I know. So... You know, you could take that into a, you know, into account when you listen to this review. Uh, but I think, you know, I think, I think we are fair in how we present it, though. I don't think we're looking at this through rose-colored or nostalgia-filled eyes. I think we're looking at it for what it is. So, you know, if you disagree, you know, we do have an email account, and you could always let us know what you think. Uh, before we sign off, Zachy, you want to tell everybody where they could find you? Yeah, look for me on Twitter, at Zachy's Corner. That's Z-A-K-I-S Corner. You can see my movie reviews at the San Francisco Chronicle and also at IGN. And, of course, the Movie Film Podcast drops new episodes every other week. And uh, we have movie commentary tracks that go up usually once a month, sometimes twice. Our most recent commentary track as we record this is for 1990s Tremors. But I suspect by the time this episode drops, there might be a few more in, in the barrel. We'll see. It could be, because we are still way ahead of the game as far as recording schedule goes. Uh, but, you know, thanks for coming on, and I definitely, no question about it, I recommend uh, I recommend the, the, the written work of Zaki, but as well as, as Movie Film Podcast, which is one of the, uh, it's, it's certainly on my must-listen list. When it comes out, I listen to it. Uh, ah, end end awesome. of story. I appreciate that. I appreciate uh, that. And, and it's one of those, you know, when I, I talk about, what I consider to be a good podcast. Uh, it's one of those ones where if I'm listening to it in the car and you guys start talking, I start talking back to you as if you're sitting in the car <laughs> with me. Uh, or, or at least I feel the desire to. I don't necessarily actually do it. But I, I, but I, it's like I want to answer you. And a lot of times it's like, oh, you know what? When I get where I'm going, I'm going to email those guys and I'm going to let them know what I think about what they were saying. And then, you know, I never remember to do that. But <laughs> just the same. It, it, it's a must listen. It's the thought that counts. Yes. So just trust that I do that. Uh, I, well, I, I think every once in a while I've, I've, I have reached out to you guys while you, I was listening to stuff. You do? Stuff. That's true. You absolutely have. But uh, anyway, uh, thanks for coming on and thanks for taking the time. And, you know, Scott, I'm going to just say uh, people want to hear you. They can hear you uh, with me on Back to the Bins. Absolutely. So thank you for making the time as well. And uh, thank you, everybody, for making the time to listen to us. We'll see you next time. Take care. We saw the earth destroyed.
Stand by. Good evening, this is Bill Bonds reporting from Los Angeles, where the biggest story since the moon landing broke this morning when two apes talked, I repeat, talked to the Presidential Commission of Inquiry. With me this evening in the studio is Dr. Otto Haslein. He is a senior scientific advisor at the White House, and he'll be giving us his views on the crucial statement made at this morning's session. And Dr. Haslein, as I recall, when you asked the male ape where he was from, the female replied, from your future. Yes. You believe that? Absolutely. I think it is the only explanation. Well, then maybe the explanation needs some explaining. Now, uh, you've written several learned dissertations on uh, the nature of time. Could you explain in terms that our viewers at home will understand how, for instance, a person or persons uh, could travel from time past to time future, mm -hmm. or indeed uh, vice versa? Mr. Bonds, I think that time can only be fully understood by an observer with the godlike gift of infinite regression. Could you explain infinite regression for us? Roll the film. I'd be more than happy to. As a matter of fact, I came prepared to do just that. Now, here's a painting of a landscape. Now, the artist who painted that picture says something is missing. What is it? It is I myself who was part of the landscape I painted. So he mentally takes a step backward or regresses, and paints a picture of the artist painting a picture of the landscape. But still something is missing, and that something is still his real self painting the second picture. So he regresses further and paints a third, a picture of the artist painting a picture of the artist painting a picture of the landscape. But because something is still missing, he paints a fourth and a fifth, until he paints a picture of the artist painting 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 a landscape. So, infinite regression, then, is... It is the moment when our artist has regressed to the point of infinity and himself becomes part of the landscape he painted and is both the observer and the observed. Well, now, in that peculiar condition, what would he be observing if he were observing, let's say, time? He would perceive, Mr. Bonds, that time is like a freeway with an infinite number of lanes all leading from the past into the future, however, not into the same future. A driver in lane A may crash while a driver in lane B survives. It follows that a driver, by changing lanes, can change his future. Now, Mr. Bonds, I do not find it difficult to believe that in the dark and turbulent corridors of outer space, the impact of some distant planetary, even galactic disaster, jumped the apes from their present into ours. And indeed, the proof lies in their arrival among us, and in their spoken, and I repeat, spoken testimony. Thank you very much, Dr. Hesslein. It's certainly the most incredible story this reporter has ever covered. I think that by their intelligence and their good humor, the two so-called aponauts have already captured the hearts of the entire American nation.